Number 161 has, has been mentioned, and we've each been asked to make a mark of that, and we'll certainly use that if it be the will of God at the appropriate time in the service tonight. As was mentioned at the outset, how thankful we are for the presence of each person who has seen fit to make their schedule and make plans to be with us tonight. We've always noted the great power that comes with our gathering together and assembling in the name of God. It is a timeless statement and a great statement of measure about the degree of our faith and degree of our fortitude, of our interest in assembling in His name to worship and to serve God. As we continue tonight with a series of lessons on the Revelation, the 66th book in the Bible, we come this evening to chapters 14 and 15 in our study. And in fact, as you notice the way in which we have moved through that series of lessons to this point, we can certainly appreciate many of the highlighted features, very graphic matters, sometimes extremely powerful in terms of God's judgment coming, sometimes very comforting in the sense of those who will be protected from such judgment. But all the while, the message and the lesson has certainly been by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it is there for our consideration and there for our learning. As we begin tonight's lesson, it perhaps would be fair to at least recollect one of the things we saw as we closed the 13th chapter last week. There was seemingly a rather ominous and a very powerful matter hanging over everything. For there was this sea beast, there was this land beast, there was the mark of the beast. All of it looked to be very foreboding, looked to be very harsh and severe and judgmental, and perhaps one might reasonably ask the question, against foes such as these, can God's people prevail? Can the faithful, can the people of God, the pious, prevail against enemies like this? The beasts we learn to be mighty. We learn that their power ultimately emanated from the devil. We learned of the ferociousness and power that associated with them. Again, the question, can God's people succeed, triumph, be victorious, and prevail? Quite often in the book of Revelation, we have at least seen the situation in which circumstances like this have happened. In fact, as a prelude to what we're about to study as the 14th chapter opens, consider with me this. When chapter 6 began, we remember the seals began to be loosed, one after the other. And in so many ways, the matters pertaining to them was again a very powerful and foreboding matter. But yet right before it was the powerful reality of the fact the throne of God is in heaven. We saw the four living creatures. We came to appreciate the scroll in the hand of the one, and the Lamb was found worthy to open the seals. There was an essence of comfort in that, that namely God was still on the throne. The throne wasn't in any place on earth, it was in heaven. Thus, the seals were opened, but then in chapter 8, something else happened. Now, the trumpet judgments began, but right before it, there was also an element of calm in that we saw the angel offering incense to God, and the prayers of the saints went up with it. Another element of comfort, a reminder of the fact that God is always aware and always interested in that which you and I are facing and wants us to appreciate His constant care of us. Thus, with regard to the seals, with regard to the trumpet judgments, we're about to see the seven bowls. I wonder if right before the bowls, there's another calming effect to those that are the Christians, reminding them of the greatness of God's power, the reality of His presence, and the fact that they will ultimately be the, victor the victorious ones. And with that, the 14th chapter opens. 
we notice in the first five verses of this chapter, and it reads as follows. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred, forty, and four thousand, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the hundred and forty and four thousand which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb." And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And so as the 14th chapter opens, here is what John saw. He saw a lamb standing on Mount Zion. And furthermore, in the first few verses of that chapter, we notice that with him was 144,000. These were not just an arbitrary arrangement, however. We carefully note that these had God's name on their foreheads. That immediately recalls to us what we saw in the previous chapter. Those that ended chapter 13 had the mark of the beast either on their hand or again on their forehead, but these are completely different. These have God's name on their forehead. Completely aware of the fact that these thus are sealed, if you please, it is these who will be the ones recognizing not only the character of the faithfulness they've enjoyed, but the protective loveliness of God for them. Let us look a bit further. There was a fantastic song herein mentioned, the song of Moses and of the Lamb. We notice that this particular song, if you please, has these very special parts to it, recalling for us Moses, that great prophet of the books, uh, the first few books of the Old Testament. We recall that he, of course, also enjoyed a great element of victory as he led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, across, of course, that Red Sea. It was on that occasion in Exodus 15 that a song was, in fact, sung a victorious one. We also remember in Deuteronomy 32 that Moses ultimately uttered forth a song, praising God, honoring Him for all that He had done for Israel. It perhaps would be worthy to note in light of that, that this particular song here could only be learned and sung by those that were the redeemed from earth. Thus, it wasn't for everybody. These were the saints of God, those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And it's interesting that John here saw a lamb in this case. That again contrasts to the previous chapter when the land beast, remember, had two horns like a lamb, but he was no lamb. Remember, he was false in his religion. He taught that which was an error. But it isn't so with a lamb. He is the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. John the Baptist, marvelous refrain of John 1 verse 29. With regard to this Lamb, the book of Revelation focuses then, doesn't it, on the victory that's ours because of Him as a result of His efforts and what He made possible for you and for me. With regard to this Lamb, we notice that these were described as being undefiled. That word used here, virgins. Notice there was no guile in their mouth, and we'll have opportunity to visit that again in chapter 22. But with regard to this purity, righteousness, we know so often in the New Testament how we're admonished to ever keep in mind that our righteousness is because of Him, because of the Lamb. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
we notice in the closing verse to that chapter, verse 21, For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Oh, how wonderful it is to think of the fact our righteousness, possible because of him. It perhaps is fair to notice that as we come to the close of that slide, the first fruits of God is here in mention, and it takes us then to perhaps this picture. 144,000 again, calling our, to our attention what we had seen back in chapter 7, that it was arranged in 12 groups, each of 12 from the descriptive of those 12 tribes. And we can see in it again some 12,000 for each one totaling 144,000. On that occasion, as we discussed chapter 7, we learned much about this 144,000 that it simply could not possibly be what many of our religious friends in the world claim it to be. Too many passages in this particular context absolutely forbid it. We did learn, though, the powerful beauty of the marvelous statement that these are those described in this graphic way, the faithful and the saints, and don't we all wish to be numbered amongst the faithful on that grand day? Beyond that, we perhaps notice some observations about these opening five verses, and then we'll move on to the remainder of that chapter. Some of these observations we highlighted in passing. The marvelous wonder of the Lamb. And isn't it often amazing how frequently that Lamb is mentioned in the Revelation? We simply cannot move too many verses without being reminded of the central feature. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we notice that Mount Zion recalls to our memory that it was a citadel in the Old Testament era, reminiscent of Jerusalem, and yet as we come to the reality of it here, so often it is reminding us in the New Testament of the church, those who are the faithful of God, in passages such as Hebrews 12, 22, in passages such as Galatians 4, verses 26 and following, the allegory therein mentioned, calling to our attention, that that city of Jerusalem, of course, today is not the special feature it once was, but rather the church is God's people. It is we who are His chosen ones. It is we who constitute that one body of Ephesians 4, verse number 4. Only the redeemed can learn this eternal song. And oh, how marvelously it is emphasized about the purity that must be theirs. Perhaps it's fair to say as we close that brief section, that you and I must too follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. They did so in Revelation 14 verse 4. And because of Hebrews 6 verses 19 and 20, that Lamb is now in heaven. And so if you and I will follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth, even if it be through the crucible of temptation and difficulty and persecution, we then will end up where, of course, He now is. Beginning in verse 6, John saw some other tantalizingly interesting things. Beginning in verse 6, let's read about some angels and what was the case concerning their activity. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters." And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, 
and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Reflecting on these verses, these seven verses that we've just read, we notice John again saw. And as often as we've highlighted the fact what John saw, he was told to write in a book. And thus as we envision it, we're able also to, at least in a way, see what he saw. John in verse 6 says he saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, and this angel had something. Verse 6 reminds us he had the everlasting gospel to preach. What a remarkable message. Wouldn't we all agree? Among the things we've seen in this book, we are now given the specific direction and the interesting features surrounding the gospel, the good news, the glad tidings. In fact, concerning those matters... The gospel and its marvelous glory, of course, became to be the preeminent matter in the Acts, the second chapter, and has been the central message for this Christian era and shall remain so until the end of time. This is the last covenant of Jesus Christ. It's His last will and testament. Didn't Paul say in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. This angel then had another emphasis to place upon the reality of the gospel. And today, you and I, of course, stand so many centuries removed from the writing of the Revelation, and yet the gospel is still as needful, as important, and as prominent as it ever was. Beyond the character of that gospel, we notice there did seem to be something rather special about the matters of the gospel that occupied the attention of the angel and also of John on this occasion. We notice in verse 7, it says, The hour of His judgment is come. There is a judgmental aspect of the gospel. There is a judgmental aspect, as has often been the case concerning God's revealed will. The Old Testament had it. For instance, the book of Zephaniah so often rung the message, The day of His wrath is come. It is true that the nations of that first century era, such as Rome and others would ultimately meet their fate as a judgment of the God of heaven because of their ungodliness. And of course, you and I readily appreciate that throughout the character of that gospel, there is that message of what's awaiting at that finality of the judgment for one and for all. I've tried to highlight some of those features in a host of passages. Romans 14, 12, a text we're studying on Wednesday evening, interestingly enough, points us to this statement, So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. We notice following that, John saw yet another angel. This one, of verse number 8, reminds us the message to be mentioned now was, Babylon is fallen is fallen. We often think about Babylon as it relates to the Old Testament. 
We are exceedingly mindful of the character of the fall of it, as so often mentioned in the prophets of old. But as we give some attention here, we notice John used the word Babylon. What did he mean? Was this the literal city of Babylon? Or was it symbolic of something else? Perhaps some different city, perhaps some different region or era. As we revisit some of what we've seen throughout the book, we've noticed in some instances Rome portrayed in a number of ways. For instance, we've seen the portrayal of such as the beast. Now we see the portrayal in terms of a city. Later, we'll see really all the way through chapter 17 the description of this one. But for now, might we notice that there seems to be a powerful reference to the Old Testament. Babylon, of course, was the one who captured God's people. Nebuchadnezzar is her king. They ransacked and destroyed the temple, ransacked and burned the city, according to Jeremiah 52, as well as 2 Kings 25.9. And now we notice that here there was also an oppressor to God's people. It wasn't literal Babylon, it was Rome. Rome was the one who hung like a dark cloud over the saints of the first century and somewhat thereafter. Their lives often hung in the balance when the terrible persecution came upon them due to the decisions and the prerogatives of the emperors. However, we notice this angel declared something that would have been so comforting. Babylon is fallen. She does not reign, or at least in the purview of that which John saw, she is not the one reigning over the character and power of all. She's met her end. She's met her demise. And as such we notice the proclamation of her fall. We notice, though, that we're going to see more details about the reality and the images of that fall as the next few chapters unfolded, ultimately reaching a crescendo in chapters 17 and 18. For now, we see the ruin that was provided and declared concerning her, and with that, John saw another angel. This time, as we read about that, we notice... This angel specifically declared God's judgment. Rome, as well as any other nation, will ultimately answer for what they do. We've often made mention in our Bible studies, haven't we, about the thought that, of course, America is no exemption to that. We will answer, just like they did, for that which they do with those resources and the laws that they have and the approach they take. Proverbs 14.34 still states and reminds us that righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. That's so of us, just as it was so of ancient Babylon, just as it was so of ancient Rome. And when a nation veers from the path of that which they ought to be and do, they will utterly and ultimately meet their demise and their fate as a judgment from the God of heaven. As you give some thought to what this other angel proclaimed, again, as judgment is so frequently mentioned in the Revelation, one can't help but think about the victory for the faithful, but the sad end of the unfaithful. We each know that there is coming that day of judgment when they shall stand and give an accounting, and from those verses we noted earlier, they will have nothing to plead. If they have not been covered by the blood of the Lamb, if they are not reckoned among the faithful, what can they say? There should be no excuses. There can be nothing that would offer a reason whereby God would grant them into heaven. Here we notice, just as nations stand before the august presence of God's judgment bar, so too, of course, will all of us. With regard to that point, 
No wonder there's a need one more time to remind these saints in verse number 12. Here is the patience of the saints. That church at Smyrna to which we turned our attention back in chapter 2, he said, you're going to be cast by the devil for 10 days. It's going to be a difficult time of trial, but you be faithful until death, and I'll give you a crown of life. Oh, what endurance and steadfast patience they needed. It certainly is true that at least in our country, we aren't persecuted directly the way that they were. Our life does a hang in the balance if we choose to assemble on Sunday morning. Theirs may well have been. You and I are not in a position to be forcefully made to be attempted to worship a bust of an emperor, but they were. May we say they were admonished to be faithful. Doesn't that perhaps ask us a leading question? If they were admonished to be faithful even in those difficult times, what might that say about you and I who sometimes aren't faithful even when times are good? Will God look upon us in leniency? Or will He perhaps look upon us in tremendous harshness for you had such opportunity and potential, and yet you weren't as faithful as you could have been? It is a sobering thought, isn't it? With regard to a passage like that, we come to verse number 13. It is one of the Beatitudes of the Revelation, and there are seven of them. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. A blessedness pronounced upon some who were dead. In our world, that may seem such an astonishment, and it may almost seem far-fetched to many to declare a blessing upon some who had died, but it was not just anyone, but it was those who died in the Lord, those who had died in faithfulness, those who had died in open compliance with the character of the gospel. For he says they can now rest from their labors. The weariness of these years upon earth, the turmoil and labor that went along with it, and for them, that often would have meant an awful sense of persecution, yet they can now rest from these things. A time of comfort, a time of bliss, a time of joy. No longer encumbered with these matters that so often trouble the way of the righteous and faithful. Isn't that a powerful passage? Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. It certainly goes without saying that one cannot die in the Lord unless one lives in the Lord. No wonder then we must day by day and moment by moment strive to live with the Lord. It's only in that way we can die with Him. Thus, no wonder we're admonished to examine our life whether you be in the faith. And you can put your name in that sentence just as well as I can put mine there. Am I in the faith? Are you in the faith? If not, we can't die with the Lord. As you can see... When the cause of righteousness seems to be in the, in the losing category, just as it was with the seals, with the trumpet judgments, now we're about to find the bowls that also pour forth God's unquenchable wrath. It is now to be noted. We have seen a highlighted comforting beatitude, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. And these opening verses have also done the same. Two passages from the Hebrew letter might perhaps be fitting at this point. We do remember in Hebrews 12, 29, that passage that reminds us it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then two chapters later, our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 31. You see, those who aren't prepared, those who have the mark of the beast, 
are going to find their lot exceedingly difficult. The last seven verses of Revelation 14 bring us to some of the opening statements about the judgment. Let's read them and then return for some observations. Beginning in verse 14 of Revelation 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out from the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle under the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it under the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress even under the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. And with that the curtain closes on the 14th chapter of the Revelation. Some statements at least about what John saw. Beginning in verse 14, John said he looked and furthermore beheld a white cloud, and upon the cloud one like the Son of Man. So often white represents purity. It represents the color that goes with royalty. And so it is here that there is one, this Son of Man, one likened to Him riding on that cloud, calls us to ask, who might this have been? We can say humans don't ride on clouds. This, of course, one like the Son of Man takes us back to Daniel, the third chapter, as well as Daniel, the sixth chapter, in which we remember that there is one likened unto this was seen in that day, and we're still reminded of the fact this was the Son of Man. Jesus often referred to Himself that way. Ezekiel, by way of prophecy, referred to the Savior that way. We find Jesus here coming in judgment we find the present reality, the fact that those of that day were about to meet the character of the coming matter of the Lord's judgment. For we notice this one is described like this. He wore a golden crown, one who ruled, one who had the preeminence and the prominence. And according to Colossians 1.18, that of course belongs to the Master Himself. It is fair to conclude also beyond that that another angel encouraged the one to take that sickle and reap. And we imagine this sickle is a very sharp thing. And in fact, if we look at a mere picture of it, here is an artist's rendition of this angel. Notice that he's carrying a sickle, that sharp matter in his hand, and it was to be used to reap, of course, that which he saw. As you give some thought to the matters of it, let's return to that previous slide just a moment. As this angel had that sharp sickle, we furthermore noted that another angel also gave this instruction or this admonition to reap. And as the last two verses remind us, the angel did so, he gathered of the wine of earth and cast it into the winepress of God's wrath. You and I think about a winepress as one of those great vessels in which typically a person will get in and use his feet to tramp out the grapes and out, of course, will come the, the, the result thereof, the wine, the grape juice. 
And in that we notice here that that which was reaped was trodden under. Out of it flowed a whole great amount of that which was its result. We notice it's called blood. Verse number 20. It says again, the wine press was trodden without the city. But notice it wasn't grape juice. It says blood came out of the wine press even under the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. This was a tremendous amount then, trying to emphasize to us the greatness of God's matter in judgment. A full 1,600 furlongs, that which was stated here, that would of course come to us to about 200 miles. Can you imagine a river 200 miles long, if we look upon it literally at least, 200 miles long, several, several feet deep and filled completely with blood. That's the literal picture. If that's the literal matter, namely what John saw, what did he mean? He emphasized, did he not, the absolute thoroughness of God's judgment that all who are susceptible as ungodly and unrighteous would meet their judgment by the greatness of God's power. And the Lamb Himself, that one Son of Man riding on the cloud, He would of course take care and be the administrator of the fullness of that judgment. Isn't it an amazing thing to again be brought to bear with the thoroughness of a description like that? In light of that, again, we noticed this picture just a few moments ago. This angel holding the sickle and reaping, of course, as commanded. With that, it is no wonder to hear some comments about so many passages in the Bible that remind us of some thoughts that, in fairness, ought to rest on our mind. We realize this judgment came on those in that first century and afterward who met that. But of course, we all know there's coming a day when this same one is going to be present in judgment. The parable of the tares teaches it, that the tares will be bound and burned. Those that are faithful, the wheat will be gathered into his barn, Matthew the 13th chapter. We see it on so many other occasions about the reality that comes to us of never forgetting the majesty that accords to His judgment. For all judgment has been given to the Son, John 5, verse 22. In light of comments like these, we might still note one more thought about the wrath of God. There are some in our world who seem to think little of God's wrath. They picture Him as a God of love, and that He is, 1 John 4, 8. They picture Him as a God of whole and complete mercy, and that He is, Deuteronomy 32, 4. But we mustn't forget that our God is a God of wrath. Now, not wrath, of course, for those who have His name on their forehead. Wrath for those who have the mark of the beast on their forehead. It is they who are susceptible to His wrath, and it's they who will meet that wrath. In 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Is that not a statement about His wrath? Poured out upon those who haven't obeyed the gospel and those who are separate and apart from Him. Revelation, in fact, reminds us of so many of these great Bible truths. In the last section of our lesson tonight, we come to one of the briefest chapters in all the Revelation, the eight verses of Revelation 15. It is with that that we'll close our lesson tonight. I would invite you to read it with me. 
Revelation 15, beginning in verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of a testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Just as surely then as chapter 14 closed with a rather ominous impression of what was shortly to come, we notice this chapter seemingly continues therein, and John saw this sign in heaven that was called both marvelous and great. Furthermore, he firmly saw seven angels having the seven last plagues. We notice these are not just arbitrary plagues, but last ones. And just as we found the seven, or rather the plagues of Exodus useful, as we studied the seven trumpet judgments, we shall, as we study these next Sunday evening, find some benefit again as we revisit some of the features of those plagues from the book of Exodus. But for the time being, we notice, as it were, there was a sea of glass mingled with fire. A sea of glass mingled with fire. Oddly enough, there were some, however, standing on this. I would invite you to recollect with me that back in chapter 6, with the fifth seal and the loosing thereof, we saw some rather interesting scenes of individuals beneath the altar. Their cause, it seems, had been trampled. Their cause had been overrun. And they cried, How long, O Lord, until the cause for which we died is vindicated? They seemingly were defeated. They wanted to know how long until judgment from God would come upon those that were their persecutors. These same ones are now standing on the sea. They're a little closer to the throne of God. Before, they were beneath the altar. Now, they're closer. We're going to see them again in chapter 20. But then, they will even be closer yet. This is a very positive thing. We should all appreciate the grandeur of that image. Reading chapter 6 and now chapter 15, these same ones are again described. But now, not dejected and beneath the altar, they are in a much closer position to the God of heaven Himself. For you see, before God's thrones where this sea was, and these now in verse 2, it says these had gotten the victory over the beast. That's that same beast we saw in chapter 13. These had gotten the victory. They hadn't given in to his mark. They didn't have his name on their forehead. They had the victory over him. And as such, they were now the ones allayed and ready to enjoy the glories forevermore due to the power and the reward and benefit and blessing of the one sitting on that throne. As these had gotten the victory over the beast, 
we notice they too in verse 2 sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. That same song we saw in the previous chapter. The 144,000 were singing. The ones redeemed from the earth. The ones who were again found to have no guile in their mouth. The ones who were described as being pure and holy. Isn't that a comforting blessing? No matter what comes to you and me on this earth, if we will be true to the Master, be true to His Word, we can leave this world, and it may cause us, cause us to lose our life, but if we will leave this world faithfully, we too can sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. We too can enjoy the victory that God has promised all of those that are faithful. For blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. As you see in verse number 4, or rather, verse number 3, Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who is our King? King of kings and Lord is Lord is He. 1 Timothy 6.15 describes Him as the only one blessed and potent, great potentate. That's Jesus, our great one. We notice through all these passages there is an undercurrent that is a victorious one. Though some of the chapters display the harshness and the judgment of God, there's always those statements of comfort and pleasing blessing to those that are the faithful. You'll notice that God's greatness is proclaimed so easily. It seems to express itself so beautifully in verse 4. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? The singular mission of the church from Ephesians 3.21 is to glorify God through Christ. And if we don't do that, we are not thus accomplishing that which is our mission. Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Here we have a snapshot, a picture of those who did that. And they are exultingly proclaiming the name of the worthiness of God. We notice finally the temple of the tabernacle of God is opened in heaven. That's in verses 6, 7, and 8. We see that smoke in verse 8 is such that the temple was filled with it. But this is from the glory of God. And immediately our mind rushes back to Exodus, the 40th chapter. After the tabernacle was completed, one of the first things that took place when Moses put all the furnishings in it as God commanded was God present, God's presence filled it with, as it were, that which was called smoke. Indicative of God's blessing and His permissive character upon that, and so too, what's about to happen? These plagues we're going to see in the next chapter also are due to His decree. This isn't John's idea. And it isn't man's speculation. This is the plan and will of God that these things are going to happen. And so indeed they did. As that closes, perhaps we can in fact make these comments about those angels and the given bowls or vials that are also given to them in verse number 7. Because it says these specifically are vials or bowls that contain the wrath of God. And might we each take note that there's a little four-letter word used. It says they're full of the wrath of God. It's not just a partial exposition. It's not just a small spattering here and there. It is the fullness of God's wrath with regard to the subject under discussion. That takes us back really again to chapter 14, doesn't it? Remember that when that third angel cried, there was no admixture to that which was the indignation of God's wrath. Sometimes in the Old Testament, according to Isaiah chapter 1, they would mix or mingle wine and water 
to dilute it somewhat, but there would be no dilution of God's wrath. It would be poured out in full judgment, and those would answer for what they had done or what they had failed to do. Perhaps in light of that, one more picture. This is another artist's rendition, and if you count those, we have there seven angels, each one carrying a golden bowl full of the wrath of God. And as they are poured out, beginning in the 16th chapter, we shall come to that chapter on our next occasion of study. And as a part of it, we shall find some of the more familiar parts of the Revelation actually will come in the character of those verses. But by the same token, some of the more perplexing matters can also be seen at that same time. As you look at these seven angels with the seven last plagues, I've tried to highlight some of what we've discussed along the way as we have made note of them. The features surrounding the matters, and that brings us to the concluding points of tonight's lesson. For in conclusion, we notice that there is a tremendous matter to be seen. Armageddon will appear in the next chapter. So often we hear about it. What is it? What does it stand for? It was a part of one of those judgments, one of those vials that was poured forth. Tonight, my friend, let us examine ourselves. Where do you and I stand in light of God's judgment? There were so many messages of comfort to those then if they would only remain faithful, no matter what. Today, our admonition is, of course, exceedingly similar. Your life and mine will be measured one day in accordance to the great reckoning as the standard of this book is opened. Jesus stated in John 12, 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. As this word will serve as our judgment. Tonight the question is this, Do you need to respond in a public way to the gospel call of invitation? We understand that God's invitation of the gospel is open all the time, be it day or night. This is a convenient time and an opportune one. And so often in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the tender responses of those whose hearts have been touched with, with God's truth. If tonight there might be one or more in the audience who also is in that similar situation, who upon the discussion of Revelation or perhaps other matters in these songs, for instance, or the prayer that we've entered in earlier, maybe you've come to examine yourself and recognize that there is a problem, that you're not right with God. Tonight, if we could help you in that way by praying with you and for you, again, if you've been, been a faithful member of the church at some point, that is what God asks of you. You must repent and you must confess those sins and, uh, and ask for the prayers of brethren. If you have, though, never become a Christian, something else is required. That requires you, of course, believe in Jesus. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If tonight we could be of help to you in some way, we would only ask you to let us know what way we could do so and that you do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.